I'm your host, Stephen Chukumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And today I'm joined by my co-host and partner in crime, Lisette Trujillo. Hello everyone, Lizette here, she, her, ella. Each week we bring you our take on things happening in the world from the perspective of two parents of BIPOC transgender kids. Lucette, it's double deuces today, episode 22. And I know that you're particularly psyched for our guest today. Oh my gosh, Steven, you have no idea how happy I am that we are finally going to interview my bestie, Russ Toomey. Well, let's be bad about it. Welcome once again, everyone, to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Lisette, thank you so much. Thank me for what? What did I do? Well, Light from Uncommon Stars is what. You told me that this book was good, but you didn't say that it was amazing. I literally had to put it down and walk away from it like several times. It's so good. It has caused me so much angst. And I've had butterflies in my stomach reading this damn book. It's so freaking good. It's good and stressful. How far along are you? The book got here like yesterday and I'm already on page 125 or something like that. And I'm trying to pace myself because I literally don't want it to end. Now, mind you, I have a whole bunch of other books that I ordered and got to before. But once this book got here, I couldn't put it down. Like I started reading Maeve Rising by Maeve Duvalle, um, about like a Goldman Sachs executive who transitioned while at Goldman Sachs and just the journey that she took to become who she is. And I also got Beyond the Binary by Jamie Brisehoff, who we just had on our podcast a few weeks ago. But this book has me pushing them all to the side. It's just that damn good. Well, now I'm going to have to get Maeve Diwali's book and let me know when you're done so that we can keep exchanging books. We'll have a parent advocate book club. Oh, my goodness. If you have other recommendations like this, please send them along. I am here for all of it. Done and done. All right. Can we talk about our kids for a second? I mean, duh, yes. Let's talk about them. Did you see that our kids were in Teen Vogue yesterday for making GLAD's 20 under 20 list for LGBTQ youth shaping a more inclusive world? Hello? I mean, how could we miss it? I shared it in like friend threads, family threads, on all the social medias. It's amazing. Not only are kids amazing, but all the youth that made that list. They're so inspiring. I know. And so they're all friends. Like Harley's on there. Rebecca's on there. Daniel was so excited. It's super cool. Steven, and not only did our kids get awarded the Teen Vogue Glad 20 Under 20, but they're also being awarded by HRC in October for their work on Trans Prom. It's so incredible and well-deserved. I am so excited to see you and Daniel and Rachel and Libby and Grayson and Laura in D.C. at the Human Rights Campaign's annual awards dinner. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. We're going to look amazing. I can't wait, too. Lizette, did you see the shit show of a Republican debate last night? It was like watching a bunch of children argue about whose turn it was to play next on the PS5. And it, and it wasn't a one-off. They acted like a bunch of petulant, misbehaving children for the entire time. The moderator was not on their J.O. at all that night. And worse than all that, worse than all that, last night was literally an audition for who can be the biggest transphobe. That second debate was rife with anti-transgender sentiment. 
with trans people being called mentally ill and candidates promising to ban gender-affirming health care. Okay, so I did not watch it for that very reason, and I have too many thoughts, and so we can't go down this rabbit hole because we'll never emerge from it. How about we go to today's hot topic? No, you're right. Let's do it. Lisa, what in the hell is up with your state? I mean, the fuckery is real, but what did we do this time? First, Santana pops off with some transphobic shit. Now, Paul Gosser, the far-right representative from Arizona, goes off on a homophobic, racist rant. Like, a few days ago, Gosser said that General Mark Milley was a, and I quote, homosexual-promoting BLM activist chairman of the Joint Military Chiefs. I mean, this tracks. He's, an, like, an awful, horrible person. Just so you know, when he ran for re-election, his siblings created a PSA to talk about what a dangerous narcissist he actually is. So when your own siblings are like, please don't vote for this crazy lunatic, you kind of have your answer. But, I mean, how is insulting our military personnel, insulting our generals, insulting members of our administration, using homophobic, transphobic, racist terms, a qualification for being an elected official. How is it that these Republicans time and time again are engaging in the most base behavior all in the name of representing their constituents? How is that possible? I ask myself this question all the time. I mean, He's a really horrible person who said really horrible things. And he was also part of the January 6th insurrection. And people continue to vote for him and support him. I think that that shows kind of the sad state of affairs we're in when people are okay with public officials making racist and homophobic remarks. He, I think, is really dangerous and has been a dangerous part of the far right for years. And... I wish I could apologize for Arizona, but I'm just disappointed that he's even here. I wish he would go away. I wish people would stop voting for him. But it says a lot about the people who vote for him and what their values really are. It really does. But I thought that on our side of the aisle, well, I'm not going to say our side of the aisle. I'm an independent. But on the Democratic side of the aisle, I thought things were better because a few weeks ago, we were talking about how amazing California was for passing a bill that would have required courts to consider a parent's support of their child's gender identity in custody disputes. Well, Governor Newsom just vetoed that bill, essentially saying that courts already consider parents' handling of gender identity when making custody decisions. So this amazing law, which was drafted and put in place specifically because courts obviously aren't considering gender identity when determining child custody disputes is now gone. Yeah, I don't understand the flip-flop. He's been like an avid ally for LGBTQIA people. He even pushed to make California a sanctuary state only to veto this. It just makes zero sense. And I think it's really frustrating to see inconsistencies in our government when it comes to trans issues and the needs and protections that our families and children have to have. And it's those inconsistencies that really concern me because we already have this federal jurisdiction abdication by our government where they're leaving decisions that 
should be uniform across the country to be decided by the states. And so you have this patchwork of laws that make it really tough as a gender non-conforming individual to figure out how to conduct yourself, where to be, where to live, how you're going to be treated, depending on where you go. And that just is not tenable. Well, and it's kind of a slap in the face to the fact that they made August a Transgender Awareness Month, only to then say, oh, they don't need further protections in the courts under custody disputes. It's confusing. It's confusing, and it really runs counter to what we've come to expect from Governor Newsom and really from from Democratic elected officials who have held themselves out, for the most part, to be honorable, respectful individuals, especially when it comes to these really sensitive issues of, of gender and gender identity. I mean, it goes back to that idea that trans activists always say the government's not going to save them. The government's not going to save our families. And it's on us to really continue to keep pushing for progress and pushing forward and questioning well-meaning allies, if that's what you want to call them, um, to do better and to be consistent in their in what they say and what they do. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, that that's really tough. That's really tough. But there are some bright spots. Like, did you see the interview with Dwayne Wade and Shannon Sharp on Club Shay Shay? If not, let me just give you a debrief. Dwayne Wade was on Shannon Sharp's podcast. His It's called the Shay Shay Club or the Shay Shay Room or something like that. He was talking about all the hoop dreams he had for Zaya before she came out and how he was truly able to see who she was after a conversation with her where she was just like, yeah, no, <laughs> those hoop dreams aren't for me. It was an amazing interview because you rarely see people being open about that come to Jesus moment they have with their kids. And to have somebody of his stature have that conversation, that very frank conversation with another Hall of Famer, it was really amazing. It was powerful. It was impactful. It really moved me. So it's in my queue. I saw it on my IG feed this morning and I was like, I need to watch this. I can't wait to watch it. I think that Dwayne Wade is communicating something that you and I know to be true is that it's experiential and it's in those private moments that you're like, oh, I, I see you. I see you fully. And that's hard to communicate. And I'm glad he's out there and doing it. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the Dak Shepard armchair Jonathan Van Ness interview. You'll have to oh. listen to that while I'm listening. You're to talking Shay about Shay. the article that I sent you the other day where Jonathan Van Ness was just brought to tears because of a conversation with Dak Shepard. Yeah, but it's actually Dak Shepard's podcast. It's called The Armchair Expert. And I listened to the entire interview and it was like 20 minutes in, all of a sudden Dak Shepard is like listing off all the turf. <laughs> talking points. All, the turf, all the turf talking points and talking about the New York Times. And um, I think I think what was really disappointing is he was like, if anybody critiques or questions this, this, you know, critiques and or questions whether trans women should be in sports or then we're all of a sudden the enemy. Um, and Jonathan Van Ness really stepped into the moment and gave facts and talked from like the human experience. And I think 
I, cr- I honestly, I cried because Jonathan Venice said something very distinctly, which hasn't been reported on, but Jonathan Venice said, cheerleading saved my life. And at the time, I never thought I could cheerlead as a transgender girl. Jonathan Venice said, I still question my own gender and I'm afraid of what that would mean for me because I know the discrimination that trans feminine people face. So people tell me I'm brave, but I'm really not. And Dax was like, you are brave. I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. But if you're not in this space with other trans people, you're not going to pick up on the fact that like gender's fluid. And there are a lot of trans feminine people who do not fully transition because they're afraid of the deep discrimination and violence that happens to trans women. And like, I literally cried listening to that because that part is completely missed in the reporting on the episode and it's and it's because people just don't understand the experience and i think jvn being honest in that moment and saying i still question my own gender and i'm afraid of what that means for me in this world i think is a whole deeper layer to the transphobia that people face and that Dak Shepard was perpetuating. It was a really eye-opening interview. And I think I had a lot of feels about it. It's so interesting that you have provided that additional context because to just read the article, that's why I was I was asking you earlier, isn't Dak Shepard an ally? Because the way the article reads, you would think that this was like Lance Armstrong interviewing Jonathan Van Ness and not somebody who considers themselves an avowed ally of LGBTQ plus people. And so knowing that there was that contextual exchange where he apologized for having gone there. And I don't even think, you know, it's it's so interesting because I don't think people realize when they're engaged in transphobia, when they're engaged in turf talking points and using turf talking points and not understanding, A, do you know where the argument that you're making comes from? This is not something that you thought of. This is something that has been spoon fed to the media and now is regurgitated by you in this conversation. And you don't know what you're talking about, but you're just talking about it as if it's fact. It's not. There was a study that recently came out about all the benefits, all the benefits that come from inclusion in sports, youth inclusion in sports, and how excluding trans youth from sports is impacting their mental health. People don't think about that. People, oh, you, this this boy is trying to steal scholarships from... No, that's a trans girl who just wants to play sports, who wants all the benefits of teamwork and competition and team building and, and, and fortitude. There's, there's benefits from winning and losing. And you're not going to get those if you're excluded from sports teams. And people don't ever consider any of these other elements or attributes of inclusion in sports when they're having these conversations. They're just like, this boy is trying to play with girls. Like, no, that's not what's happening. Stop saying that. And she wants to create camaraderie with other girls. Hello? That's the bottom line. She wants, like, a young trans girl who wants to play volleyball, wants to be in 
community and camaraderie with other girls who enjoy that sport. Like at the end of the day, that's all it is. And I think that JVN was really good at being like, look, not everyone's going to go to the Olympics. This story of like a 35-year-old man transitioning to go to the Olympics is ridiculous, right? Like no one's doing that. And so I think they did an incredible job of advocating for trans kids and talking about the realities that the people being banned on the ground really are like 11-year-olds who want to play soccer or softball or basketball. Like basketball saved Daniel at a time when he was getting horribly harassed in fifth grade and having other kids to play basketball with meant a lot to him. So I think that's really the, the story, but they want to keep talking about, you know, the Leah Thomases and Olympians that are the outliers as opposed to like who these bands actually hurt. Absolutely. Absolutely. But We can't keep talking about these issues because we have a guest in the wings. And if I recall correctly, this is your boy that you wanted to interview waiting in the wings. So let's get to it. Let's do it. Welcome to the show, Russ. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited to be here and to chat with y'all. So Russ, you and Lisette have been friends for years and she knows all about you. Maybe not the exact date of your birthday or your tea birthday, but we're going to go past that. But I don't know you from a hole in the wall. So as usual, I did my research. And do you know what I found? You are a smart motherfucker. No, seriously, you've published quite a bit in the areas of sexuality, LGBTQ related themes, heteronormativity, gender and ethnic minorities, and you've done a butt ton of research. But what draws you to these areas in your work? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I really got drawn to this work when I was in undergrad. I worked in the LGBTQ program student resource office, um, we'll call it. It was really a closet at that time, which is, you know, metaphorical. Great. Um, But, you know, I was working in the office as a student employee and had really just kind of come out as queer myself for the first time. Um, And it was during that process too that I was starting um, my transition as well. And I couldn't help but notice that so many of my peers across campus were struggling with mental health. Um, You know, no surprise, we're experiencing oppression, we're going to struggle with mental health. Um, and I went to the literature. I was I had already changed my major at that point, and I was in uh, family child and family studies is what the major was called at Ohio University. And one of our required classes was actually called uh, Death and Dying, and so we were learning about the death process and the ramifications that it has for families. And we had to write a term paper and we had to write a term paper on whatever we wanted to. And so I was like, I want to write about suicidality among LGBT populations. Went to the literature. And I mean, this was back in the late 1990s, early 2000s. There was one paper, one, one paper written on youth. The rest were written on adults. And I'm like, well, no, there's got to be something more happening in youth than there is adults. Um, And so it really just spurred my interest in in trying to understand 
how can we document this problem? And then how can we fix it? How can we fix humanity to make people more compassionate beings, less oppressive beings to prevent suicide ultimately among LGBTQ youth? Wow, that, that's a story. That's an origin story if I ever heard one. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it kind of leads into our next question in that, for example, you started because suicidality was not researched and or talked about. And we've moved into a moment where intersectionality is talked about a lot. And it's one of the things that we talk about on this podcast because often people are spoken about in a very singular way. How are you seeing research as a whole around LGBTQIA populations take into account these intersections? Or are you not seeing it shift fast enough or at all? Yeah, in my opinion, it's not shifting fast enough um, at all. Um, when I still look at the literature today, you know, I will open up. I've, I've been in the process of writing two grants to the National Institutes of Health with colleagues, one of whom uh, I believe you all have interviewed, uh, Roberto. Um, and, you know, so we're deep in the literatures, really, you know, trying to justify the grants that we're writing. And I'm still stunned and shocked every time that I read an article that's been published in 2023, and it's a sample of like 80% white trans folks or 80% white queer folks. Like, why, why is this still allowed? Like, why is this still getting past the muster of peer review that we can be publishing with almost entirely white samples? I really jumped in to the intersectionality kind of literature when I was a PhD student. I grew up in rural Appalachia uh, in a border of West Virginia and Ohio. And I grew up in a very white town. So as a white person grew up growing up in a white town, like race, racism was just not something that I ever, I, I had the privilege. I didn't have to ever deal with racism um, growing up um, in my, in my community. And so then, you know, fast forward and I had lived in DC for a little bit and then moved to um, Tucson, Arizona, where I currently am to do my PhD. And here I am in a, in a border state, right? In the borderlands. Um, and I'm looking around and I'm like, you know, the whole, the whole literature is on white people yet. Like none of it is speaking to the experiences of my friends um, who I had gained after moving to Tucson who were Mexican um, and experiencing not just racism, but oppression around language, oppression around skin tone, oppression around like all of these factors, nativism, like all of these factors. And so I decided at that point to, after I finished my PhD to actually take a, a little break, if you will, from LGBTQ or sexuality and gender focused research and just dive right into research on Latinx youth development uh, with uh, my amazing mentors who are at the Arizona State University. So that at the end of that, I could feel like I was doing justice in terms of doing that intersectionality research in a responsible way. Uh, because I think what we still see when we do see intersectional research now, it's oh, we have a sample of, you know, Black trans women, and we're looking at their mental health. 
but they're not looking at racism and how it affects mental health. They're not looking at transphobia, how it affects mental health. They're not looking at like trans misogyny and how that affects mental health. They're just saying, well, we have a black trans sample. So we're, we're looking at intersectionality and it's like, well, no, you're not looking at intersectionality. You're, you're looking at a sample that has intersectional experience, but you're not saying anything about that intersectional experience. Um, so I think the research is just decades, centuries behind uh, where it needs to be at this point. It's so interesting that you mentioned that because um, I know I've sat in meetings where researchers and and psychologists, right, are trying to reframe their the structure of how they either serve populations and or write about populations to actually take bias into account. And so, you know, it's, it's because we usually see research being like, this population is depressed, therefore blah, right? Instead of like, this population is harmed by society due to bias, therefore it leads to depression, right? And so are you, you get to travel, you get to go to all these conferences, you send me text messages that's like, oh my God, Lizette, you have no idea. But are people like, are people in your field challenging that idea more of like talking about societal impacts? And is that even possible to like quantify well yeah to quantify it in like ways that you think would create change yeah I really wish I could say yeah people are starting to do that but I can't and that's why I text you when I'm at a conference and I'm like what the fuck is happening right now like why am I sitting you know like all the trans scholars like sit together when we get into the, the room, right? Because we're surrounded by a, a bunch of cisgender queer folks or cis straight folks who are studying LGBTQ queer trans populations. And so like we're sitting together and I'm like the most senior one, right? Like I was the first out trans person studying queer and trans youth in my entire field that anybody can ever think of, right? And so like, and I, now I'm like considered a senior scholar, which is just a whole other other thing for me to deal with. Um, but I'm sitting there and like, you know, none of these other trans scholars have the, the, the privilege and, and the power to actually say something when we're seeing injustice happen in terms of how people are reporting science or their studies. And there was a there was a session that I was at in, I think it was March of this past year, where they, a, a group of, you know, really well-known scientists and, you know, friends of mine were presenting study findings on trans youth, and they were reporting disparate health outcomes. I think their health outcome was sleep. And so they were saying, you know, I forget their findings, but like trans boys, have lower sleep quality and sleep fewer hours during the night. And it's similar to cisgender girls in their sample. And so they were making all of these like conflations going back to, you know, and they were specifically, you know, talking about it in terms of sex assigned at birth, right? And like, well, maybe this is just a sex related issue, like totally just then abandoning, honoring that participant's gender. 
And in the context of presenting it, they weren't talking about oppression at all. They weren't, when they were talking about the discussion, they didn't talk about why are the reasons why trans people might, trans youth in particular, might not be sleeping well these days. You know, I can think of a lot of reasons why trans youth aren't sleeping well these days. Um, I know I'm not sleeping well as a trans adult these days. And so, you know, just this continued, like, lack of care and attention to how we describe differences when we do find them between populations and the really critical importance of never talking about it as a demographic difference. That has been something that one of the very first papers I published as a PhD student was now, I mean, it was groundbreaking, which is like mind blowing to me to think of it as, as groundbreaking at this point. But it was a sample of queer young adults. It was from the Family Acceptance Project um, data with Caitlin Ryan at San Francisco State. And I wanted to look at health disparities um, and I wanted to try to help folks understand why health disparities exist. And so there was a, a, a measure in there that looked at school victimization because of LGBTQ identity. And I explained why there was a, a relationship between gender nonconformity and mental health outcomes. Again, this is like late 2000s um, in that decade by school victimization. And that was groundbreaking because every other study until that point had just looked at gender you know, variance as it was called back then and negative mental health outcomes, putting the blame then on somebody whose gender is not aligning with societal expectations. And so I think it's really critical to always have that like, what is it? You need to be explicit about why are we finding differences? What is explaining those differences? And almost always it's oppression. You know, it's it's interesting because Again, I, I, I'm the researcher, and so I was doing research on you, and you've published like almost 100, I think it's like 93 or 94, and you you co-published, co-wrote, co-authored, etc. and a lot of this stuff was during, as you said, when you were a student, you just, you, you had to push the work out because you ultimately wanted to be a PhD, and you wanted to, you know, pass your dissertation, all those other things, but one of the things that you wrote was a piece you co-authored with Amy, I, I want to say Cyberston. Um, it was Thriving with Pride Through Ways to Support LGBTQ Plus Youth and Protect Against Suicidal Behavior. Uh, I think it was for the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention for Pride Month. And I, I just, I can't help but notice that a lot of your focus is, is on youth and on harm prevention to youth. And again, this is like the first question I asked you, what draws you specifically to this area of work? Yeah, I um, have really always been focused and had an interest in how do we help youth navigate these daily contexts of oppression, regardless of really what that oppression is being driven by. Um, how do we help them navigate so that they stay alive? Um, you know, I, I've lost folks along the course of my life to oppression. And I never, I'm, I'm a parent now uh, to, to two young kids. And like the thought of either them 
you know, ending their life because of some oppression that they're experiencing or one of their friends. Like, it's just, no, we, we have to prevent that. We have to step in. And, you know, I have really seen my research in kind of two different levels. One is focused on youth themselves. What are the skills, the tools that we can give them to have in their toolbox so that when they encounter oppression, they can rise up against it right and 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 rise up over it and just say a big fuck you to you know the the folks who are oppressing them and live their life and thrive you know what are the things that we can do um and that's where i see most of my research efforts and energies and the things that keep me up at night in terms of like thinking about what is it what are the tools that we should be providing and then the other strategy is like, what are what are the systems level changes that need to happen? So I've studied policies in schools and um, healthcare settings, and you know how can we change those policies? I think the reason I also focus on youth is because those policy changes take so long, right? Like it takes so long to change policy and, and procedure at that structural level. So what can we do in the meantime to give youth the tools to, to really thrive. I think that's what I value most about you. And I think what drew us to being friends in the beginning. Um, so for context, Russ and I met at like a kid's family camp, like trans camp, right? I had already been part of the parent community for like a year or more, but I didn't go the first year to camp uh, and then went the following year. But Russ is in the work. Like Russ and I have dealt with crazy people from like pushing, uh, you know, inclusive sex ed, legislative sessions. We've both been litigants in lawsuits. Russ is like deeply in the work and like knows so many of the kids. Russ and I rock anti-trans t-shirts all the time. <laughs> we send them to each other. Sometimes I forget why I'm getting weird looks, right? But Russ is deep in the work. And I, I want to ask you, what are the challenges you face as a researcher after all of our years of advocacy in this peak moment after 600 anti-trans bills that you're seeing in institutions of learning, that you're seeing on the ground? Does it make you want to push this research out faster? Yeah. So that is a really difficult question. On the one hand, yes. Does it want to make me push... The, the research out faster? Absolutely. Do we have like a hundred other papers that are like in the works right now? Yes, that we're trying to like, we're, we're trying to be strategic and matching. Okay, we have data. We can, we can answer this question that's coming up in session, you know, convenings or that we are seeing the right really push in anti-trans legislation in other states. Like, oh, we have data that actually speaks to that question. Let's get that paper out yesterday, right? I mean, unfortunately, the peer review process is so slow. And COVID, like, you know, just made it probably 10 times slower um, because people's capacity is just lower than it was before. So yes, it does make me want to get research out faster. I'll be honest, though. The other side of it is it just makes me want to hide in a, a deep, dark hole somewhere away from everybody. And it's it's something that like my cisgender peer, faculty members, colleagues just cannot understand. And I don't know that they'll ever understand of like what it feels like to not only do this work, 
but to do it as a trans identified person, which there aren't many of us who do this work and are trans. Almost all of the research on trans youth has been written by cisgender folks, many who are cisgender and queer, but you know, it's mostly written by cisgender folks. And so to have your identity attacked, not only professionally, but personally, uh, because the, the hate emails I get are usually professional and personal. Um, you know, I'm on the professor watch list, which like I take as a badge of honor, you know, from Turning Point USA, I'm on their professor watch list. I'm one of like three professors at the University of Arizona who are on that. Um, and so it's a, you know, select group of people. But on that, on that website, they, they, yes, they talk about my research as, you know, being problematic. Uh, but they also point out my lawsuit. And interestingly, they edited it. Somebody must have told them that they had it wrong. But initially, they they were gender affirming me because they were like, look, this guy wants to cut off his penis. He's suing the state for trans health, you know, inclusive care. And I'm like, absolutely. Yes, you are getting my gender right. <laughs> <laughs> it made me laugh when I read that too. I texted you and I was like, um, they are not understanding at all what's happening. But, you know, to get back to the question, like, you know, most days it's fucking scary. Like I have a security system in my home that like my kids are now growing up with a security system in their home. And that's just like never something that I wanted my kids to have to experience. Like, you know, we like get home and they're like, is the alarm set or can we just open the door? Right. Like there's a there's a conversation that happens about it daily when we're about to enter our house. Cause you know, sometimes I forget to set the alarm and that the, they can go right in. But I have had threats. Um, I think it's even more scary when you know that your employer is, you know, usually just saying, well, we can't really deal with it. Go deal with it elsewhere. There's nothing we can do to make you feel safer. And I've recently heard that folks at my workplace have even said, well, you know, if you don't feel comfortable or safe doing it, maybe you just should do some other work or do something else. And so like actively not engaging in protection and safety and engaging in, well, if that's unsafe, you know, just don't do it. Which is like, for me, goes back to something that Jose, Lizette's husband has asked me before of like, why? why do you do this? Like, why are you up at the legislature? Why are you the only professor at the U of A that's like driving the whatever, two hours to go testify at the state legislature about trans youth? And for me, it's like, it's it's not a choice. Although that's something I'm actively working with with my therapist. It is a choice. I am choosing to make, you know, that decision to advocate. But for me, it's the, the sitting on the sidelines is, would be worse for, for me. So yeah, it's just a really scary time seeing bomb threats at some of my colleagues' hospitals and even research centers, um, having uh, blogs written about me by the Society for Gender, whatever they call themselves, the like hate group, the SGEM medicine group that tells themselves as scientific when they're not. You know, it's it's scary never knowing when you're going to be safe because you are a target at this point when you're doing this work. Let, let's talk about a couple of things that you brought up. First, 
I think is is the lawsuit. You know, again, doing research, I came upon Toomey versus the state of Arizona. I was like, is this the same dude we're talking about? And you actually, through a class action lawsuit filed by the ACLU against the state of Arizona and the Arizona Board of Regents, because they essentially were denying medically necessary gender-affirming health care to trans people employed by the state. Can you really talk about the lawsuit? And I'm assuming you can talk about the lawsuit since I found this article online. But, you know, where is it? What is it? How is it? Give us a breakdown. Yeah, so um, I've been engaged with the ACLU since about 2017. So this has been a long time, and I am ready for it to be done, uh, to be honest. But um I joined the faculty at U of A in 2015, and as a University of Arizona employee, I am technically an employee of the state. And so all state universities, uh, we all have our health insurance provided to us by the state. Um, the state has had a longstanding policy. Um, actually, when I first started in 2015, um, they excluded all gender-affirming care, including hormone um, uh, coverage. Uh, in 2017, that changed to just banning or excluding gender-affirming surgeries from, from care. Um, you know, I have a gender-affirming surgery uh, that my doctors have, you know, said is medically necessary. Um, I believe it's medically necessary, but the health insurance, because of that exclusion from the state of Arizona, was not going to cover it, meaning, you know, 20 to 30 to 40 plus thousand dollars out of pocket for um, for a surgery. Um, and so I filed a, a lawsuit with the ACLU against, you know, not just the state of Arizona and the Board of Regents, but my even my own employer, the University of Arizona, had to be listed in that. Um, you know, we filed that. It was actually like formally filed in, in January of 2019. Uh, there have been, you know, a few hearings here and there, depositions there, here and there in over the summer. And now I'm totally blanking of when it was. But in June of this year, 2023, we have a Democrat governor now, and um, she actually signed an executive order that orders the Arizona Department of Administration to remove the exclusion from care for gender affirming care. And so that has officially been lifted. The, the ban has been lifted or exclusion has been lifted since August 15th, I believe. However, my lawsuit is still ongoing because what we know about executive orders is that, you know, once a new governor comes in, they can take away everything that the former governor did and reverse things. Um, and so we are in the process and this is part of public record. So um, we're in the, the process of settlement discussions to, to make this a, a permanent policy um, in the state of Arizona. Uh, however, the uh, Republican leadership in the state legislature has decided to take interest in my case uh, and has filed briefs with the federal judge that is overseeing the settlement, um, which has delayed the settlement um, because they're arguing uh, they're arguing that the executive order in my case essentially violates the state law that they passed a couple years ago or last year on gender affirming um, medical care bans for youth. And so, which is just fascinating because my case is not 
specifically about youth care. Um, but they're they're claiming this this overlap and why we shouldn't have the settlement in my case. Yeah, that's where we're at with that. Some great news from from Governor Hobbs in terms of signing that executive order. I mean, to to think about like the hundreds, maybe thousands of folks, because it's not only state employees, but it's their dependents, it's their you know loved ones that are on their health insurance plans who can now access gender affirming surgeries and be have them covered by insurance. It's just incredible to think about. I just want to just just pop in because there was a ProPublica article that really made it super clear how discriminatory some of these laws are because one patient can get the exact same surgery that you are being denied. And it's only being denied because of how you identify. The doctors are not gonna have to do anything more or anything less for you than this other person. But just because you identify as transgender, they're now treating you differently, which is something I don't think people fully appreciate. So I really appreciate you being, you're really transparent about what you've been going through. Yeah, I think, you know, that um, during that ProPublica article, and I think it's actually in there, one of the things that just like really came up for me around how clear it was that it is discrimination was my like work bestie, like my work spouse, if you will, um, had the same exact surgery that I have been trying to get since 2017, had the same exact surgery, had it within like two weeks of the doctor saying, you need this surgery. And it was completely covered and we're on the same insurance plan, right? And so it was like night and day in terms of, okay, because she identifies as a cisgender woman, woman she was able to get the surgery without anyone ever questioning, right? And then I go, and it's been six years of of questioning whether I should only, be able to access. And not only that, but the thing that struck the both of us too was the amount of money the state and the university have paid out in legal fees, as opposed to just allowing insurance to cover it, right? And that was in the ProPublica piece. I don't remember the hard number, but it was a large number. Yeah, yeah, it was billions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. The article actually talks about how different people are being denied what would otherwise be something in the tens of thousands. And they're racking up hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars just to fight a lawsuit. Like, come on. And and so one of the things that Lisette and I talked about previously was a trip that you, Daniel, ACLU folks, and, and, and Lisette took to one of your reps' offices, and, and you were met by a staffer who just was probably the most transphobic person that Lisette had ever dealt with in that setting. Um, probably not in life because, you know, you get the crazy people. And, and we're talking about people that work for elected officials. How difficult must this moment be for you, knowing that there are people in elected office actively working against the interests of their constituents like yourself? Yeah, I think for me, it's it's multiple layers, again, of, of difficulty, because it's not only the personal difficulty of sitting there in front of this representative's um, staff member who literally looked at me after I said, I've actually, I, I said something about, you know, I'm celebrating 20 years of, of transition next month. And he looks at me later in that meeting 
when we're talking about like the stability of gender identity and says, well, you could change your mind. Like the audacity to be to like, you're probably going to change your mind. Like, I know it's been 20 years, but you're going to change your mind. And then for him to do the same to Daniel, right, was he, because he looked at Daniel and said the same thing of like, well, you're going to regret it. Like, you know, like you're, you're going to change your mind. You don't, you don't know. You're, you're probably going to change your mind. So having that, like that personal, because to me, like all of the anti-trans bills come down to they truly want to erase trans people out of existence, which will never happen because they do not believe that we are real, that, that you know, they believe, I don't know what they believe, but that, that we're not real. And so to have your identity just totally and completely not seen in those spaces is hard. But for me too, it was like the anti-science sentiment that like is connected and wrapped up with anti-trans sentiment, with racist sentiment, like it's it's all wrapped up together, right? <laughs> he, sa- he sat there and he tried to like mansplain to me science and was like basically telling me, I don't know what I'm talking about as the PhD researcher. <laughs> wait, 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 because this is just too rich. The statistician, the PhD, the researcher steeped in academia, was being mansplained to science by a staffer. Wonderful. How rich. No, he like he like really believed that he had like a PhD in all the things. So like it was Wait, did he go to Trump U or Prager U? <laughs> oh he yeah, get- he graduated from Prager U. <laughs> But it leads into the next question because, I mean, he knew his misinformation. He had his talking points down. He understood, you know, the assignment. And, you know, you and I both understand that the tools that are used by the lobbies on the right are very exact, right? They're, they, they, have, they have their talking points that are utilized to misinform people offer debate tactics on how to argue uh, on the existence of transgender people. And as an academic, can you talk about the ways in which this level of disinformation in our mainstream media, because now we've seen it seep into mainstream media, you and I were both burned by the New York Times. How does this cause harm? How can parents, right? Because I'm hoping parents are listening to this. How can parents discern the difference between the misinformation they're reading and prevent that from them causing harm to their kids, their transgender, non-binary youth. What what can they do? And I ask this because you and I have talked about research being often inaccessible to certain populations. Yeah, I think this is the million dollar question right now. Like, how how do we combat disinformation that is purposely published and out there with the intent to harm how do we how do we combat that because what we're seeing is that it's being published in academic journals now and so then it takes this extra layer of like insight and knowledge and experience to understand okay like you have to actually read the study now you have to know whether it was legit scientific methods that were being used, what the flaws were, what the limitations are, because all studies are flawed. There is not a single study, especially, you know, well, I'll just say there's not a single study that is not 
flawed. Every study has flaws. It's about how do you interpret that data properly and acknowledge the limits to your generalizability or limits to your conclusions. But I think now that like people are able to publish science that is just not even not even science science, um, but they're publishing it in peer-reviewed articles. Um, it, it's going to take a lot to overcome overcome that issue. And I I think the biggest issue is when you have New York Times and the like science reporters reporting on the science as if it is the same standard of science that they had been reporting on previously, how is the average consumer of that supposed to be able to tell the difference? They're like, oh yeah, the New York Times is saying this, so it must, this must be true. I actually don't know how to combat that. And the National Academies of Science has actually called for funding to be able to understand how do you combat disinformation now, because we are in such a heightened period likely driven by the anti-science movement that has been growing for decades now um, across the world. But how do you combat that? Like, it makes me think of um, an experience I had a couple years ago, I guess it was just last year, at drop-off at like my kid's preschool. And I was wearing one of the shirts that you referenced. I think it was like trans kids, uh, protect trans kids or something like that. And I'm walking in, I'm dropping off my kid at preschool. And a mom stops me and says, you know, are you, are you like the Russ Toomey that I read about in the New York Times piece? Because my kid has been like saying some weird things about their gender, like clearly not in an affirming space for that kid yet. But like I was, I was up all night, I was doing the, the research and I came across your article in the New York Times or your name in the New York Times around transgender kids. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. That's like, that's what I do. Um, and so she went on to tell me that she had read all of these New York Times pieces. And I'm like, oh no, like <laughs> you actually don't have the, the right scientific information. And she's like, but it's the New York Times. And I'm like, yeah, it is the New York Times, but they're publishing some really harmful information that's really not based on science. They're not based on published findings. It's based on hearsay and it's based on, you know, these stories that we're pretty sure are being paid to be populated. I um, love the fact that you're talking about the National Academy of Sciences actually taking a look at this because we're finding not only is this disinformation and misinformation finding its way into mainstream media, it's also finding its way into the courts. We're seeing justices at the federal court level, the appellate court level, who are citing studies by just junk doctors, just these snake oil salesmen, uh, you know, mothers defending freedom, alliance, for whatever these crackpots are, these well-funded crackpots who can prop up these individuals, get them in front of our justices and have these arguments sound like they're legitimate. And it's very scary. It really is. I mean, I had to take stats twice, so I, clearly I'm not, I've told Russ this, I failed it the first time, had to take it in summer school, but it blew my mind when Russ told me that people can pay certain publications to publish and legitimize their research. It blew my mind. I mean, because 
people take that as Bible, right? Like they're like, it's a published study. And, you know, I'm sometimes Russ will send me things and I'm like, I have no idea what this means. And luckily I have a friend who can explain it to me. But I think that it's just been really difficult. Both of you know, I run a support group. I had a parent in there just laying out all the all the misinformation and terrifying parents. And so I find that parent spaces are often, you know, ground zero for harm when they are, when they fall into the misinformation gap trap. And it, I'm, I too am glad. And I wish that there was an easy way to discern science, actual science from this craziness that we're you in know right what? now. We've got an expert right here. Tell us more. Uh, we've got an expert right here. So, so Russ, now we're putting you on the spot. What are three things that parents can do to provide support for TGNC youth in this environment today? Believe their kids. I mean, I think that's the, the foundation. Believe their kids. Listen to what your kids are sharing with you. Because the fact that they're sharing with you says a lot. Because a lot of kids won't share with their parents anything because they don't have that trust with their parent and they perceive that their parent is not going to believe them. So if your kid is sharing with you their journey, whatever journey they're on, believe them and, and trust them. I think the second is seek assistance outside of your child to grow, to learn, and to deal with whatever internalized stuff you're, you're working with in terms of your own internalized biases. Um, and so we all, all of us have grown up in society with the same oppressive air that is surrounding everyone, right? That we're all breathing and that we're all taking in. So we all, doesn't matter who we are, what positionality we have, we all have to work through like getting through oppressive shit that we've learned. Um, and so, you know, finding a therapist, finding a support group, whatever that is for that person, ways to work through that, that do not involve the kid. Um, and then three, like having your kid be with other trans kids, making sure that you are providing opportunities for your kid to not feel alone. Because I still have worked with, with trans youth that have come into a research study um, or an intervention that I'm like trying to, to pilot and run. And I will never forget the, the, the trans kids that, that come to those sessions. And at the end, when we're asking them in terms of research, you know, like, what are some of your favorite things from this experience? Or, you know, what, what things would you like us to adapt? And when they say, I thought I was the only one, still in 2020, you know, 2022, I thought I was the only one. I didn't know that there were other kids out there like me. That's a job of parents to make sure that doesn't happen, especially if there's that level of support where, you know, a parent was bringing them to a trans intervention, like find the support groups, find ways to connect your kids to other trans people, trans kids, trans adults. And I think, you know, two, find ways to connect with the adult movement of trans, of, you know, or connect with other trans adults, to have them in the space with you, with your family, with your kids, so that they can see themselves represented. Um, because it's just so huge in terms of, we know representation 
you know, a lot of representation gets a, a bad name because I think some people have this idea that as if we have representation, we've made it, you know, we, we have what we need. But I view the kind of other side of representation of, you know, always having my like youth development hat on. If you can see yourself represented, you can see a future for yourself. And that is like so important to keeping kids alive um, because I, I think about, and this is where research becomes me search, right? Like I think about little Russ growing up in like rural Appalachia, West Virginia, where I didn't even know the word gay was a thing. And so I was like a junior in high school. I could never picture myself six months ahead. Like I could never envision a life for myself. And it was because I didn't see people that had my experience. And now, you know, like I get to be that person for like trans young trans scholars who are coming up or like the trans kids that I get to interact with at, you know, different community events or lobbying or whatever we're doing. Like I get to be that person, which is like so amazing to be like, yeah, guess what? Like you can grow up and you can have a life. It doesn't always have to be about being trans either. Like you can have this life and do your hobbies of hiking or whatever it is for you um, and, and, and thrive in many different ways, even in this horrible environment. So yeah, I, I think those are my three suggestions. Russ, thank you so much for being here today. I love you and adore you. You know that. And thank you for being such a, an incredible person in Daniel's life. Cause I know he just loves you too. Thank you, Russ. This has been thoroughly enjoyable. And don't let Lisette like give me a bad name. She knows what she does. You gave yourself a bad name. <laughs>It's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is the Biden administration. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Service Administration for Children and Families is proposing a rule aimed at protecting LGBTQIA and intersex youth in foster care. The proposed rule would require that every state's child welfare agency ensure that LGBTQIA children in their care are placed in foster homes where they will be protected from mistreatment related to their sexual orientation or gender identity. In addition, caregivers would receive special training on how to meet the needs of LGBTQIA intersex youth and information on where they can access the services they need for them to thrive, as well as legal representation to children in foster care and access to federal funding. These steps really exemplify the Biden-Harris administration's steadfast commitment to putting the welfare of all children, including LGBTQIA plus children, first. And this is why the Biden administration is our ally of the Okay, congratulations to the Biden administration. Now, on to our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is Representative Lauren Boebert. Take a listen to what Ms. Boebert had to say on the House floor. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I rise today to offer my amendment that utilizes the Holman Rule to reduce the salary of Sean Kelly, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness. That salary shall be reduced to $1. 
As the Assistant Secretary of Defense, Mr. Skelly is the Principal Advisor to the Secretary of Defense and the Undersecretary of Defense for personnel and readiness on all matters related to the readiness of our armed forces. Like many of Biden's bureaucrats, Mr. Skelly is failing at his job. Mr. Skelly has also been with the Biden administration since the beginning and was appointed to the transition team. Some irony there. As DOD's highest ranking trans official, this delusional man thinking he is a woman embodies and espouses the wokeism that causes, that's causing significant harm to our military readiness and troop morale. Bobert referred to Sean Skelly, a highly decorated Navy veteran and current Assistant Secretary of Defense for Force Readiness, who happens to be a trans woman, as Mr. Skelly during her entire time on the floor. The point of Bobert's transphobic rant was clearly to distract from the fact that she's the lyingest liar, a perv, and an embarrassment to her state, all stemming from her recent Beetlejuice debacle. I just love the way that assholes like Lauren Bobert use transphobia as a get-out-of-jail-free card. I just can't with these people. Well, he said, that's why Lauren Bobert is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Russ Toomey, for joining us today. And I also want to thank and bow down to my co-host, Lisette Trujillo, for keeping me on my toes. Um, I'm bowing down back, Steven. And you know that I always got you. And we couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. And as we sign off, please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the necessary things to stay up to date with everything we're doing here at the Parent Advocate Podcast. Bye. Bye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.